Um, I hope you were blessed and encouraged. That is one of my all-time favorite choir songs. Um, you can go listen to the Brooklyn Tabernacle, do that on YouTube. Um, but just a beautiful song, and there's a purpose. This is, our, this is the psalm that David wrote during this time of his life when he fled from Absalom. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to now preach through that same psalm that we just sang together as a choir. So Psalm chapter 3. Now, I've referenced this psalm the last two weeks in our study of the life of David. Again, David flees from Absalom from Jerusalem. And we know that David wrote this psalm during this time because the first line of the psalm says so. In our English Bibles, it's part of the superscription. It says there, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, that is verse 1, okay? So note that the superscriptions in the Psalms are actually part of the Hebrew Bible. They're part of the Scripture. So for us, it just looks like part of a title. Now let me say also that it's also important to note that in the Psalms, this is the first Psalm with a superscription, all right? So um, let me briefly recap as we get here how we got here in David's life. So after David was established as king in Jerusalem... David was supposed to go out to war, but instead he stayed in Jerusalem, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing by the name of Bathsheba. David lusted in his heart after this woman who was married to Uriah, and David took her. And then David tried to cover over his sin by deceiving and manipulating Uriah. Eventually, he sent Uriah to the front lines with his own death certificate, and David tried to cover it up by murdering Bathsheba because she was pregnant. David, however, was under... David sinned greatly against the Lord there, and so what God did was he sent Nathan the prophet to David to confront him. And there, Nathan tells him that you are guilty. You've done this. And then God says, you're forgiven. I will forgive you, but what you did in secret, I'm going to do before all of the house of Israel in front of the very son. And so, what happens from there is the story twists and turns, and then Amnon, David's son, gets infatuated with Tamar, his half-sister, and he rapes her. And Absalom, Tamar's full brother, waits two years and then executes vengeance on Amnon by murdering him. Absalom is eventually brought back to Israel, and he slowly builds a following for a number of years. Under the, and under the guise of peace, he goes to Hebron and is anointed king at Hebron. And when David hears of this, David flees Jerusalem in light of what Absalom has done. And David writes this psalm at some point reflecting on this episode. Now, we don't know exactly when David wrote it. I assume he didn't write it in his haste as he flees from Absalom. But after he reflects on this, this psalm is written, and it's a reminder of God's presence, even in the presence of our enemies, of God's purposes, even when it looks like there's a seeming defeat. So this psalm is going to outline David's hope as he trusts in God. So my hope is that we will all learn to pray, and we will all learn to trust the Lord like David, even when we are in dire situations. And this is one of David's own making. So let's look at Psalm 3 together. We've already sang it, so I'm going to read it as we go through the text. So it begins, this psalm begins by outlining first David's plight. David's plight. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says there, O Lord, 
How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now first, notice the emphasis in these two verses on many. Three times David says that many are his foes and many are rising against him. In 2 Samuel 15, that outlines Absalom's rebellion where he worked to steal the hearts of Israel before David, verse 15 says there, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. There are many that are rising against David. If David believed the conspiracy was small, he most likely would have stayed in Jerusalem and not have fled. But from his calculations, he believes that there are many more against him than there are for him. So what we see here is that David is being squeezed from all sides, including from his own tribe, the people of Judah. Now David's always known that the Benjamites didn't care for him, but now it seems that all of Israel has gone over to Absalom. Many are rising against him. But the worst accusation is in verse 2. They were saying of his soul, they were taunting David and saying of his soul that he had been abandoned by God. That it was God himself who had abandoned David and left him at just, sorry, that it was God himself who had abandoned David and left him just as God had left Saul when Saul rebelled against the Lord. This is what Shimei, the Benjamite, taunted David with. That this evil is on your own head, David. God is doing this to you. We have to remember that God had anointed David, and now the taunt is that God had abandoned him. Now this would be complete hopelessness. It is complete hopelessness to be abandoned by God. That God would forsake or leave or abandon a person is the greatest of horrors imaginable. David even spoke of this fear in Psalm 51 when he had repented of this very sin that led him to this moment. David there in Psalm 51 prays, cast me not away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God, David feared being abandoned, but I also want you to know that though they're taunting David with this, There is incredible arrogance for someone who would say this. Incredible arrogance. Think about it. It is incredible arrogance to say that God cannot or God will not come to the aid of another if they cry out to him. It is arrogance to say what God can or cannot do. God, after all, is the most free being in existence. Now, we all claim to be free. We're freedom-loving people in America. But let me tell you that God's freedom is of a different kind altogether. God has no human limitation in regards to knowledge or in regards to space or time or power. And that's something that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon also had to learn when God humbled him and reminded him of how little he actually was. Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 4, He says, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says, who had exalted himself over the Lord. 
He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing before him. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now those that are taunting David don't allow God that same freedom. David has no help for him. There is no help for David and God. So here, David's plight is not looking good. He's being squeezed and taunted. But now look at David's promise in verse 3. And David turns after listening to these taunts and he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Now that David's poured out his complaint before the Lord, verses 1 and 2, he turns his attention to the promises of God. We would do well to learn the same. His enemies are taunting him and saying that he's hopeless. And so what does David do? He turns his heart to his hope. And that hope comes from the confidence that David has in the Lord's promises. Notice the contrast David makes with his enemies. David begins by saying, but you, O Lord. They are saying this, but you, O Lord, are my help. David isn't helpless. He's not hopeless before God. No matter what others may think or say, David's confidence is not shaken. Now, it may have been for a time. There may have been a time when David contemplated this and wrestled over this and worked through this in his own heart and soul but that did not have the final say. David stops and contemplates why he should have confidence in God's promise, though his world seems to be crashing in on him. And that's a question that all of us have to wrestle with. When all the things are crashing in on us, do you stop to contemplate why, must, why can I have confidence in God even in the midst of this? Well, David lists several reasons, and let me give them to you. Five reasons David has confidence in God's promises. Number one, first, David has confidence to trust the Lord whom he knew, but you, O Lord. The Lord had always been faithful to David. The Lord that he knew, this is the Lord that he knew from spending time meditating on God's word. It's confidence in the God that he knows. Not some thought of God. This is a personal relationship with the Lord, the God of Israel. Second, David has confidence in God's ability to protect him as a shield. The Lord had always rescued David and gone before him. The Lord had fought his battles, had saved him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, from the sword of giant Philistines named Goliath. The Lord had spared him from Saul and from all the others who had risen against him. So David had confidence that the same God who had delivered him then could deliver him now. But third, David has confidence that God alone was his glory. That's important. Just think about that for a moment. David's glory isn't because he's king. David doesn't glory that he's king. David doesn't glory in his riches or in his military success or his chariots that others trust in. No. David knew, like all believers also should know, that we exist and we live and we move and we find our being and we die all for the glory of God. 
that God is my shield and my glory. And that will not be taken from me. And fourth, David has confidence in the covenant promise that God had made to him earlier. If you remember, God had made a covenant with David that God had promised to protect David's throne and establish his own chosen king from David's line. And that, by the way, is what is strikingly absent from this Absalom saga. Absalom mistakes his success on God's blessing. But the author never says that God told Absalom to go be anointed as king. And after all, God is going to judge Absalom because he lifts his hand against, the, against God's chosen king. And we'll cover that next week. But fifth, David has confidence in God's purposes for him as king. David knew that the Lord would be the lifter of his head. Now, that may seem like a strange image to you. I heard uh, some, of our, some of our little kids asking, what does it mean about lifting our head? Why do we keep singing that God is lifting our head? Well, let me explain it to you. That's a very clear image to ancient readers. You see, in ancient times, a conquering king would place his foot on the neck of those they had conquered. That's what he would do. It was the ultimate humiliation and shame. Those that were conquered were, it was a picture of being absolutely hopeless and at the mercy of their conqueror. What David is saying here is that he will not find himself in that position with Absalom. That it would be God at the end of this who would not subjug, have David subjugated to Absalom, but God would lift and exalt him again. After all, it was God who had lifted David up from being a shepherd to the throne of Israel, and God would do it again according to his promise. And that is the confidence that David had in the promise of God. Now, like David, all of us here should take inventory of our faith. In times of crises and in times of distress and in times, of what, in times where it seems hopeless and we seem helpless, we need to take inventory of our faith in those moments and refuse to believe the lies and the taunts of those around us. After all, I'm sure all of you have heard the whispers of the enemy in your ear. I know them quite well. In my weakest moments, my struggles and my failings, and I hear the whisper in my ear that says things like, you're not loved by God. You're useless. You're worthless. Things like God will not help you. He has forsaken you. What's the use in praying? You've sinned too much to ever be forgiven. I don't know about you, but I've heard that time and time again. In the middle of the night. Let me remind you in this moment that those are half-truths. Notice that the enemy, he'll remind you very much of your shortcomings and your failings, but you know what he will never tell you of? The provision of Jesus. He will never speak to you in your ear of redemption, of forgiveness, of love and mercy. That is what the gospel reminds us of. In those moments when the enemy lies, turn your hearts to Christ. Turn your hearts to to the gospel and hear the whole truth. 
the whole truth is that we are more sinful and flawed than we could ever even imagine. And at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could dare hope. That's the hope of the gospel. It's in those moments we need to remember that. That's David's promise. Third, notice David's protection. Look at verses 4 through 6. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept and awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now in these verses, David turns from the promises of God to the protection that faith brings. Notice how David moves from speaking about the Lord to speaking about himself and his faith in this moment. Now there are three truths here of what faith does in the life of David. Notice first, that faith pushes David to use his voice in prayer. Faith pushes David to use his voice in prayer. He says, I cried aloud with my voice. He pours out his heart before the Lord in faith. As his enemies sought to silence him, they sought to silence David's faith by saying he had no hope or help. David, in faith-filled defiance, cries aloud to the Lord for help. Now listen, though there are others who are certainly praying for David during this time, like Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Hushai, and a host of others that are praying for David, David does not for a second set aside his own access to the Father in prayer. He prays and cries out, and that's what personal faith does. I'll remind you, David doesn't need a priest. David doesn't need his pastor. He doesn't need the Pope. He goes straight to the Lord who answers him out of his holy hill. That's where the ark was sent back to, back to Jerusalem. And though the ark didn't go with David, David says, God hears me wherever I pray. And that is the truth. We pray knowing that God hears and answers us wherever we pray. Second, faith gave David rest of soul, mind, and body. Faith gave David rest of soul, mind, and body. You notice that? So having confidence in the Lord and crying out to the Lord, now the Lord calms David and brings him much-needed peace and comfort. He laid down and slept and awoke because the Lord sustained him. Notice what the text does not say. David does not write here, I did not lay down or go to sleep. Or he didn't say, I laid awake and fearful and restless. He didn't say, I was up all night with my mind racing with anxiety and worry and fear. David had plenty of reasons to stay up and be restless and fearful. Thousands of them. They all had swords. They were all hunting him in the night. He had plenty of reason to stay up. But he didn't. He poured out all of that before the Lord, and the Lord gave him peace and gave him rest because the Lord sustained him. And let me just say here, how many of the saints, how many of you, how often do I cut myself off 
from the peace and rest of God. Because we would rather choose to sit and stir and worry and fret over the situation as though God doesn't help, God doesn't care, God doesn't listen, believing the lies of the enemy, instead of like David, pour out our complaint before the Lord and resting in God. David found peace and comfort not in worry and distress, but in pouring out his complaint before the Lord. I want to point out here, just as an aside, that Augustine used this verse in early church history. I lay down and slept and awoke to point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That David here is an Old, is an old Testament type of Christ pointing forward to, to Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and being raised again because the Lord would sustain him as well. So faith gave David rest of soul, mind, and body. Third, faith fights David's fears. David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now that's true. There really literally are thousands of people at this point who have risen up against David. That's true. But David's not alone. Hear me. It is far better to face those enemies alone with the Lord than to face the Lord with all the world at your back. You need to learn that. You will never walk with Jesus faithfully or fully if, you are, or if you're more fearful of being alone with the Lord than having the entire world at your back. That's why we sing songs that says, Though none go with me, I will still follow Jesus. If all the rest of you forsake Jesus, I and my house will choose to follow the Lord. I'd rather be alone with Him than be surrounded by the rest of what this world offers. Now that is a lesson that David has learned through his life. He repeats it all through the Psalms. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. He says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And it's that, that basic lesson here. The basic lesson here is that we really only learn to trust the Lord when we get to the bottom of our faith. When we set aside all the other things that we most commonly rely on and trust. That's when we know. So that is David's protection, his faith. And then fourth, David's plea. Look there in verse 7. This is David's plea. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. David's confidence and faith meet in a courageous, hope-filled plea. So David here calls on the Lord to arise at this moment and go before him. Now what you may not remember is that this is the same plea that Israel made each day in the wilderness as they wandered. When Israel broke camp each morning in the wilderness and the Levites would lead the people out carrying the Ark of the Covenant in Numbers 10.35, this is the prayer that Moses would say over the people every day when they marched out. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And David here co-ops that prayer that Israel would have said every morning, and he says to God, now you go do that for me. 
God, you go out and fight this battle for me. He takes the same prayer and plea of the Lord to go before him and fight before him. Though the ark is back in Jerusalem, David knows that God's presence will still go before him. And David will repeat this same prayer in Psalm 7 and in Psalm 9. Arise, O Lord, and let not my enemies prevail. Now as I conclude, throughout this psalm, throughout this psalm, it is abundantly clear that in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of this insurrection, in the midst of this rebellion, in the midst of this civil war, where thousands and thousands of lives are on the line, it is clear that David's ultimate hope lies only in the Lord. And that is exactly how David concludes this psalm in verse 8. David says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to David. It doesn't belong to Absalom. It doesn't belong to the army. It doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to a church. It doesn't belong to a pastor. It belongs to the Lord. Now salvation in the Old Testament is used for both physical and spiritual deliverance. And here, we're going to learn as we go through the story, God will physically save David from this trouble. But David's basic point here is that God alone holds his salvation. David, sorry, David's basic point here is that God alone holds salvation and deliverance in his hands. Those that rise up against David ultimately do not have the power to save. They ultimately do not have the power to deliver. They also ultimately do not have the power to destroy. God alone holds our past present and future that's why that's why jesus tells his disciples do not fear man he says they might kill the body but they can't cast you into hell rather fear god make sure you put your fear in the right place now this truth does not change when we come to the new testament no matter what we face our hope and our faith must rest in the lord so what does this mean for us in our daily lives as we go through all kinds of battles and distress and struggles? Listen, when you get to the New Testament, Peter, living for Jesus, is arrested and thrown into prison. And God sends an angel to deliver him. Praise God, all the church is praying and Peter is delivered. Well, just a few chapters later, James is arrested. He's not spared. Right after that, Stephen is arrested. He's not spared. What do you make of that? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's in His hand to save or deliver no matter what happens. No matter what God may choose. That is the point. Listen. A friend may be spared from cancer. And your spouse or child may not be. Both are praying. Both are relying on the Lord. That doesn't mean that salvation, salvation only belongs in the hands of the Lord. Two brothers may be called off to war. Only one might come home. A family might be riding in, the, in a car together. Three of them die and only one comes home. This is what happens. All of these can be praying and pleading, but salvation is ultimately in the hands of God. And lastly, we must consider Jesus. 
Jesus, like David, prayed and and pled before the Lord, pleaded before the Lord in the garden. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus willingly is not spared, but is delivered over for us all. Jesus willingly gives his life as a ransom for many. Jesus dies, the just in the place of the unjust, so that by his mercy and grace, he can bring full and final salvation, not just physical salvation, but eternal salvation for anyone who would call on his name. And this whole story of David is preparing us for the story of Jesus. May we all be able to pray like David and Jesus in the midst of our circumstances, trusting that ultimately God will save and bless His people through King Jesus. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word, to the preaching of His word. At this time, we're going to have a very brief moment of invitation before we take the Lord's Supper together. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come find salvation in Him, not anywhere else. If you're looking for a church home, we invite you to come and be a part of ours. If you need to come and repent of trusting in other things, and today you just need to come pour out your complaint before the Lord and say like David, salvation belongs to you. You come this morning as we sing. Father, we pray that today that you would speak to your people that you would speak right now and you would challenge and change our hearts for the glory of Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name.